post-Russian Revolution world and the Stalinization of international communism ends up whitewashing the question of capitalism in the West. In effect, they think capitalism in the heart of capital, in the heart of the capitalist world world order is off the table. And that's where you get these uh, rotten anti-Marxist concepts like liberal democracy. Liberal democracy expresses a contradiction in Marxism. As I was trying to say before, democracy will demand the liquidation of liberalism as it's doing right now. Rights of free speech or rights to be racist, rights to assemble or rights to insurrect, uh, etc. Um, and of course, they do it in the name of protecting democracy. Uh, so this is what I would say, you know, that the 20th century uh, gets very confused about these things. And the liberals drop the, the language, too. I mean, the liberals are happy to take this language of liberal democracy, whereas in the 19th century, they didn't. They thought, you know, I mean, the whole category of Bonapartism or imperialism, of course, comes from liberalism. They knew that there was something wrong. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. I first read the 18th Brumaire when I was 23 on a beach <laughs> in Greece, as you do, sat suntanning, reading, reading the 18th Brumaire. And I have read it for various reasons again and again over the years. So this was a really good opportunity for me to revisit um, the events of 1848 to 51. Um, and Did you reread about, it in preparing? No, no. I've been reading August Nimitz, Marxism and Liberalism. Right. And there's a very good chapter in that book that compares Tocqueville's understanding of what happened with Marx's and how Tocqueville was complicit in a lot of the events that led up to it. And yet he still blamed socialism and so on. So it was a good way of sort of um, reminding myself of some of the key events, but also getting some of that additional context. So that, that that's my recommended reading for anybody who's watching. Part of my interest, so this month with Sublation, we wanted to do crisis theory because I think that an economic crisis is coming and those in power are trying very hard to deny this and push it down the road and say, no, no, actually it's not. And oh, actually there's this growth. It's very interesting how much denial has been going on. So I wanted to get ahead of the game and try to start understanding this particular crisis and how capitalism itself goes into crisis and how our societies respond to crisis situations. This led me to trying to branch out from my usual comfortable territory of the falling rate of profit um, to reading about neo-feudalism. And this led me down quite a rabbit hole. <laughs> and at the moment, 
one of the things that I'm really interested in is this capacity or potential or, or trend within tendency within capitalism to have this almost irresistible backward pull. That one of the things that I like about the neo-feudal thesis um, is that it reminded me, it jolted me out of this complacency that I had maybe for a few years that not inevitably like, oh, we just sit back and all revolution comes, but that we would see the necessity of revolution and we would fight for it. And it would that there was it was just no alternative. It was barbarism or we would fight for socialism. And this made me think, well, something worse can easily happen than either of these kinds of options. That it's not just that we descend we descend into like selling each other fried cockroaches on the side of the road after a nuclear war. <laughs> you know, there's like something else can happen. So I wanted to go back to the 18th Brumaire to think about to think more critically about what happened historically. You know, you had in 1846 um, crop failures, widespread unrest, people starving, uh, 1847, a banking crisis. Yeah. And and people It's really an economic the crisis, yeah. So that's kind of the the scene now and me sort of setting it up for trying to understand this moment in history that became so crucial to later Marxist understanding of what happens in, a, a, you know, you have a crisis situation, a revolutionary situation, and then a period of regress, for lack of a better word. Um, and I wondered if we could go through this, this moment and try to understand it through some of Marx's work and some of your work as well, um, and see what we can draw or not from this historical lesson. So you've been working on a number of texts for a long time that are now being finished. Um, can you tell me what the significance, if any, there is? Well, yeah. tell me about your, your present work. And then, and if, if it's not too much to ask, um, what is the significance of some of this context to what you're writing about? I mean, I, I worked on editing I mean, I'm still working on editing uh, Marx's journalism uh, from the 1850s. Uh, you know, I don't want to go too, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about that on other podcasts and I like your setup, so I'm, I might just sort of address it. But, the, you know, basically, it, you know, what I would say is, that, you know, we're going to talk about the 18th Brumaire here and the wider question of you know, sort mm -hmm. of what, what Marx is learning uh from the experience of the revolution of 1848. And, you know, I would just say that what I did when I proposed these books was I basically said to my publisher, look, um, people think that there's like this political Marx and he sort of pops up from time to time, you know, at 20 year intervals. Uh, you know, he writes like the 18th Brumaire and then he, you know, goes to the British Library and he does, you know, he, he, he works on political economy. Uh, and then 20 years later, you know, he writes the Civil War in France. Uh, and, you know, really, you know, there isn't a political Marx and, and an economic Marx or a social theorist Marx. You know, there's one Marx and, and, and he's a revolutionary. 
uh, who's drawing the experiences, you know, drawing from the experience of 1848. And they, you know, he and Engels lay great stress on that, you know, that we've learned lessons uh, from the revolution of 1848. And I draw out the significance of his 10-year period of writing journalism uh, from 1851 to 1862, 11 years, I suppose, um, where he's elaborating the 18th Brumaire and mm -hmm. deepening his, you know, his, his reflections on the revolution of 1848 uh, for you know, what in the collected works of Marx and Engels is about seven volumes, you know, very thick volumes, um, and, and show that, look, you know, these preoccupations don't go away. Um, and, and so that's what, uh, you know, I've done is I've, I've taken this journalism and I've selected it, you know, because it's uneven. Um, and also, you know, it was published in, in sort of, to no good purpose in the 20th century. Uh, you know, it, it was published as sort of Marx on England, Marx on India, Marx on yeah. China, you know, this sort of uselessness. Um, you know, and, and, and I basically said, look, this is, this is all elaborating Marx's argument about essentially the crisis of, the crisis that is democracy in capitalism. And so that's what, you know, this work has been about. I'm working on the third volume right now, which is about the Crimean War. Uh, but, you know, the, what you were raising, Ashley, is, you know, in a sense, there's this question that over the course of the 18, uh, of course, the revolution itself, uh, but also the in the 1850s, Marx is raising this question of, the relationship of the economic uh, to the political, mm. right? Um, because there is a crisis. I mean, his whole adult life is a crisis in the sense that uh, you know when he comes to uh, when he comes of age, he's experiencing in part directly, in part vicariously. Um, because he's reading a lot about England and he's making friends with his, uh, with his buddy Ingalls, uh, who's producing this masterpiece about the condition of the working class in England. It's known to historians as the, the hungry forties, right? So there's a, there's a social question or, or, or the labor question, um, the condition of England question that's sometimes put in, in the liberal press in Britain. Um, you know, people like, Benjamin Disraeli write novels about it, right? Uh, it's an issue that everybody knows. Thomas Carlyle writes about it. Uh, it's the question of, of unemployment in industrial centers, in centers of labor, you know, in centers of productivity. And it's the question of the emergence of working class politics, um, of socialist politics, um, which in Britain looks like Chartism and in, in France looks like the Communist League and the different organizations of Auguste Blanqui. Those are the, those are kind of defining questions for Marx. And so there is a crisis in the forties and it's deepened by this financial crisis of 47 uh, that, 
that leads to an outbreak of revolution. And so Marx at first has a kind of um, a fairly mechanical idea that, you know, economic crises cause political crises. You know, people get, you know, poverty strikes and there will be a political consequence to that. And then, of course, you know, he very famously writes in 1850, um, pissing off or alienating himself from a lot of the exiled revolutionaries that are in his milieu, that, hey, the revolution's over, right? He makes that argument in part on the basis of, you know, the restoration of economic uh, dynamism, um, like, Look, the economy's picking back up and, you know, the revolution is dying out. He says that in the fourth part of the class struggles in France in 1850. But he, there's a further sort of thinking about it uh, when there's the crisis of 1857, um, right, that, that causes him to write the Grundrisse, a, a text that I know is very dear to your heart, uh, as it is to mine, Um you know, at first the idea is like, I got to get this down. Like I've got to get down like my studies of political economy um, because, you know, there, there's this economic crisis, but there really isn't a political revolutionary result of that. If anything, uh, politics gets worse. It gets worse in, in Britain with the kind of consolidation of Palmerston as a kind of Bonapartist leader, a kind of jingoist uh, defender of a very belligerent policy, it, you know, towards China, uh, and and the very brutal suppression of the Indian Revolt of 1857-58, which the British public res- responds to with a kind of bloodlust. And a deepening of the crisis of the slave power in America, the, the road is really opening towards um, secession uh, by the late 1850s. And so it looks like uh, the counter-revolution is kind of consolidating itself on all hands. And, and Marx begins to develop, I think, a much more um, nuanced, even more nuanced uh understanding of the relationship of politics to economics. So in the 1840s, he has this sort of mechanical idea, and you can see this in some of his writing, where he says that starvation led them to the barricades. And then he's very excited in the 1850s because he was expecting another crisis, which he assumed would lead to another revolutionary uprising. In that bit, in the class struggles in France that I mentioned, he says the return of the revolution is as certain as the return of crisis. Yeah, yeah. So when was it that he, was it the experience of the late 1850s and the lack of an uprising that changed his mind about that? I think he, I think he had, there are a lot of indications that, you know, already in the 18th Brumaire and and elsewhere that uh, he has a, you know, quite a sophisticated understanding of, of politics. Um, in fact, you know, the sophisticated understanding of politics, mm-hmm. very arguably. Yeah, but I think it deepens. I think it deepens, and I think it's the it's the definitive thing, um, you know, that actually conditions the way he writes about um, the way he writes the critique of political economy. Um, you know, that he 
that he does develop the argument about the fetishism of commodities um, really as a, you know, that that's what's absolutely distinctive from his previous studies of political economy, right? Is, is I would say that you, when you get to capital, you're really talking about a theory of democracy in the state, right? Like what is the fetishism of commodities? Like the fetishism of commodities is like, how does that manifest? Like how does this, you know, topsy turvy world uh, manifest? It's, it's, it's the environment that the, the working class has to negotiate in mass democracy. Can you kind of elaborate that a little bit? So what is the connection between the fetishism of commodities and democracy specifically? Well, I think that, of course, capital's a great big argument, but you know, he, he develops there an argument uh, on the ground of, you know, of course, the English example, as it were, a, a social example, um, you know, where he kind of gets to the question of democracy as he gets to the question of capitalism per se, uh, which I would say the question of capitalism per se is really opening up with the notion of relative surplus value in the industrial revolution. You get there uh, by talking about the opposition between liberal rights, you know, between right and right force decides. He's raising the issue of politics as he's developing the categories themselves. So he's talking about the, you know, and, and of course the working class can't address the length of the work. You know, this is in the chapter on the working day. It can't address the length of the working day in civil society. It can't address it by going on strike and forcing their boss to limit the working day, right? They have to demand the, legislature or the legislature has to register their demand for a limitation on the length of the working day, right? It, it exits civil society into the political sphere, right? In the 18th Brumaire, uh, the way that Marx talks about it is with respect to the June days, right? That General Kavanyak is a good liberal in putting down the working class in June. So again, there's a question of opposing bourgeois right, um, giving rise to mass democracy, universal suffrage democracy, which is, of course is electing uh, Louis Bonaparte. Uh, so the, the I would say that capital is a, is a critique of yes, obviously it's a critique of political economy, uh, but it's a critique of the people who are pursuing political economy, which is to say socialists, right? Socialists are trying to assert the rights of labor. They're trying to assert the rights of the commodity form of labor. And in so doing, they're driving the commodity form of labor into crisis, into contradiction, right, under industrial conditions. And it's those industrial conditions and that mass unemployment, that condition of capital that's giving rise to the political question. In other words, Marx's theory of, of the capitalist state arises from his understanding of society, that people are going to, you know, what do you do when, when the commodity form of labor is in crisis? 
you demand the right to vote. If you're potentially unemployed and everybody is potentially unemployed, right? So the question of socialism is giving rise to, uh, or, or the question of the, the social question is giving rise to mass universal suffrage democracy. That's the Marxist understanding, right? It's not just that like women and people who didn't have property had been denied the right of mm-hmm. to vote. No, Marx thinks like universal suffrage democracy is like a particular kind of problem that is expressive of capitalism, right? This is the politics of the commodity form of labor in crisis of a society you know, organized this way. Uh, and, and of course, he, he thinks that, you know, in socialism, we will overcome democracy. Yeah, that's that's another can of worms to open up. But to, to so to just to sort of um, bring out the key point here and, and sort of bring it back to the events of 1848, you had mm-hmm. this um, situation in which, you know, that you have the hungry night, uh, 1840s, you have a. Um, uh, this this situation in which people are just starving and this leads to unemployment and so on. And then um, you have this, all of these elements of society express these contradictions. So you have the nationalists, the liberals, the socialists. Who else did you have? Um, well, you have these different factions, you know, you have these different monarchists, right? So you have the Orleanists yeah, right, and, yes. and the legitimists. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you, you have you know, different yeah. types of Republicans. Yeah. And they all they find some find common cause. Uh, and one of these common causes was um, universal manhood suffrage, at least, um, among other things. And so in 1848, they among many, many other things that, that they demanded. So 1848, they have this this revolution, which is ex- expressing this contradiction as a demand on the state, right, on the uh, for a constitution. And what comes out of that is a constitution that is um, that contains a number of concessions to such an extent that liberals at the time said it was a victory for socialism. Alexis de Tocqueville, for instance, said that the um, French Constitution of 1848 was a victory for socialism. All of these these problems get expressed as democracy, as a demand for democracy, which itself also deepens the contradictions between bourgeoisie and proletariat, right? Because now the bourgeoisie wants to create this constitution that shores up its power um, and it's right to rule and it's right to exploit or whatever, maybe right's the wrong word, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, written into this constitution is a limit on that power, uh, which is universal manhood suffrage. Um, and so they've kind of, by doing that, they've now created a situation in which the hostile classes can potentially reach a victory. And this then has to be clawed back fairly quickly. The revolution can't be stabilized because uh, obviously, um, you know, the working class immediately makes demands for national workshops, right? They're 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 demanding the right to work, and mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, you could say liberals are saying, well, you know, here's this demand that's arising from society, and we have to meet it, right? As good liberals, yeah. we have to, we have to address this new problem. But of course, if you do that. Uh, you are undermining the rights of property. Um, and this results in, you know, the calling of, there's, you know, there's a national assembly 
uh, is formed and the National Assembly tries to bring the revolution back to the bourgeois measure, as Marx says. Um, and indeed, you know, the leader of the work of, of the French proletariat, Auguste Blanqui, says this National Assembly is going to doom us, right? And he tries to um, oppose it. They arrest him and, and the other leaders, Barbet and the other leaders of the proletariat in May. The, revolu- the uprising comes in June. It's put down by General Cavagnac in the name of the Republic um, because you know the working class is opposing universal rights and they're viewed as a particular assertion, right? They're, they're, they're making a, a particularist assertion. Cavagnac is acting in the name of the law and yet he loses in the election that results from the constituent assembly, you know, the new constitution is, uh, calls for a presidential election. And the guy who's elected is a socialist, Louis Bonaparte. Uh, he's a San Simonian socialist. He's not a defender of bourgeois, you know, of kind of a bourgeois liberalism. That guy was Cavignac, he runs in the election, right? It's not a scandal that he puts down the working class in Paris in June 1848. He's running on it, and yet he loses the election in, in very handily. And then the rest of the story that Marx tells in like the class struggles in France is how they can't stabilize this revolution, right? They can't figure out a way to stabilize it as a republic or even to restore the monarchy, right? The factional split within the monarchists between the uh, legitimists and the Orleanists is actually expressing a real uh, disintegration of the capitalist class for Marx, um, of its class interests, and you know the descent of capitalist politics into a kind of factional cliqueish uh, racket politics. And so... They keep trying, but they're afraid of Louis Bonaparte, so they keep trying to restrict the suffrage. Right? They're they're worried about you know um, you know voter ID laws or whatever. Right? It's this kind of problem. Right? They're they're basically saying you know you have to have certain residential requirements. They're trying to to restrict the suffrage, and so um, Louis Bonaparte has been you know the the Constitution says he can't run for a second term. And so he overthrows the government uh, in the name of democracy, right? He says, look, I am the only one who is going to defend your right to vote, right? And so he overthrows the government in the name of universal suffrage democracy. They're trying to limit democracy. They're trying to conduct these new elections on, you know, a restricted suffrage basis. And Louis... Louis Bonaparte is reelected, you know, the, the empire, he has a referendum on, you know, to, to validate the creation of the second empire a year later. I mean, he has a referendum immediately to validate the coup. And then a year later to validate the creation of the empire, subsequent referenda are held. He's extremely popular, um, you know, and, and he does appoint a bunch of socialists to his government, including finance ministers and all the rest. Uh, who are San Simonian socialists. So this is, you know, for Marx, 
there's something true about what Tocqueville is saying, right? It is a socialist revolution, right? Capitalist politics is kind of all socialism for Marx. You know, it's, you know, as I jokingly would say, it's comrade Trump, it's comrade Biden, it's comrade Clinton, right? They are leading the revolution, right? That is capitalism. And the problem is that they're just recreating the crisis of that revolution, right? That it takes proletarian leader, you know, it takes proletarian socialism, as it were, to master it. Um, but, you know, there's no such thing as like, whatever, you know, rights of property, liberal, bourgeois uh, society, right? In the, the, the conservatives, though, had empowered Bonaparte. You know, they had given concessions and sort of danced around this idea that, well, although you have Article 45 of the new constitution, which says that you can't be reelected. You know, maybe if you, if we have a, if you're so popular anyway, and you, you know, you are, you rule with a light hand and so on, and don't rock the boat too much, you know, we can just kind of do away with Article 45. They kept, they kept, you know, they, they saw Bonaparte seemed to me as something, somebody useful that could come in and, and that they could use for their own purposes. And then it's the famous kind of, image of the um the sorcerers not able to control the powers of the netherworld that they've come that they've conjured up and all of a sudden the whole thing um gets out of hand and um you know famously sacks all the ministers and everything um and they kind of symbolically protest but at the same time they don't care so this becomes a um they don't really care this becomes for a lot well historically the kind of key moment for understanding the empowerment of an individual to oppress or suppress a revolution. So how does that square with what you've just said in the sense that they are leading the this sort of capitalist revolution um, that, but at the same time, they are empowered by conservative forces. So I'm just trying to make sense of, of all of these events. Right. So the, obviously the, the, the very, elemental issue is the emergence of the capitalist state, right? That's what's really fundamental here in the 18th Brumaire. For bourgeois society, um, the it may have required political revolution, you know, Marx says, you know, the bourgeoisie today, you know, can't imagine that the ghosts of Rome, you know, oversaw their birth, right? There were heroics, right? There were revolutions. There was Cromwell. Uh, there was George Washington. There was um, the tennis court oath, right? There were high ideals. Bourgeois society had to be emancipated, uh, as it were, politically. That's a process of the subordination of the state to society. There had to be that process. And that sometimes the state 
the old feudal state or absolutist state, which was really what the revolutions were directed against, was a kind of early modern absolutist state, um, you know, had to be taught, look, you are the enforcement of the laws arising from society, right? Parliamentary supremacy, all the rest. The subordination of the state to society is the project of the bourgeois revolutions. And it's tragic that it had to take so much violence and so much chaos and so much confusion. But ultimately, that tragedy did win new ground for the revolution, right? There was the advancing of the project of the third estate's subordination of the aristocracy and the church to the needs of society. That's why it's first time tragedy, right? There's a tragic element to the bourgeois revolution that it required this kind of political form, but it did emancipate society. Um, now, this the process of revolution is farcical because it not only are you not gaining new ground for society, you're losing all the rights that you've won. As he said, on December the 2nd, the February Revolution is conjured away by a card sharper's trick. And what seems overthrown is no longer the monarchy. It's the liberal concessions that were run, wrung from it by centuries-long struggles. Right, that the, the entire bourgeois revolution is called into question. Rights are lost. The state is re-emerging. And society seems to have fallen back behind its point of departure. This is the setting up of the task of proletarian revolution in that portion of the 18th Brumaire. The state is re-emerging as a capitalist state. That's what the significance of Louis Bonaparte is. In other words, to get to your point, like Louis Bonaparte is a man for all seasons. He addresses the needs of everyone in society. He addresses the needs of the working class. Uh, he addresses the needs of the bourgeoisie. But he'll put down the working class and he'll shoot the bourgeois fanatics for order on their balconies with his drunken soldiery if need be. The question is the managing of the contradictions of capitalism. And so the state is going, it has to emerge in the absence of a working class movement for socialism that can meet this crisis. The bourgeoisie can no longer rule, right? Which is, which doesn't mean control the state. It means the bourgeoisie can no longer speak for society. Their wealth, their investment no longer expands the possibility of society as a whole. They can't rule through civil society, which is how money rules anyway. Adam Smith says, like, look, money doesn't rule politically. It rules in society, commands labor. But that's in crisis, and the working class cannot yet rule. The state is the as it were, the placeholder of that unmet, you know, the Bonapartist state, the capital state is sort of the index of that unmet need. And it looks like the rule of force 
its management of this contradiction. And so all of a sudden, the state, rather than being subordinated to society, is like rising up out of it and standing over and against it, right? You have this kind of language in Marx of like the state giving being given like a new impetus and it's like hostile and it clogs the pores of society and all of that language. And at the same time, it's driven by a necessity of, of it, you know, he has these wonderful images like Louis, Louis Bonaparte steals France in order to give it back so that everything looks like you know, it's this is the this is the beginning of the Marxist uh, analysis of the authoritarian state. Everything looks like in this society a reward for your obedience. Everything looks like a gift that you've received. The old idea that you like earn your place in society, there's the independence of property and the independence of wage labor and that you stand on your own, that's in crisis and instead, um, at the heart of the reproduction of society is is force and obedience. One of the driving forces I mentioned earlier behind this was nationalism in the sense of national sovereignty, this kind of thing. And interestingly now, when you have anything that kind of smacks of nationalism, people kind of hark back to a weird kind of admixture of the 20th century and something, something strongman. <laughs> and they get very concerned about anything that sounds nationalistic. This is one, th one of the things that sort of jumped out here. One big question, I suppose, and I know that Doug's been getting a ton of flack about this, where he's wanting to defend something and people are saying, oh, come on, this is all backwards. Um, the state will never give you anything. Um, it's all, you know, obviously all of our freedoms were illusions anyway. Why are you surprised that the press is is being controlled? Um, and so it seems to me that on the left, we're, <laughs> we're kind of in this position of like... We're dealing with, Ashley. <laughs> Good God. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I just, it just seems to me like any time that people want to... Because obviously democracy, the way that it is expressed largely is through our nation states. Um, but then in a weird way, national sovereignty comes to be bound up with nationalism, possibly because the word national is in it. <laughs> and then this becomes something that's very scary uh, and that we would, we would fight against and maybe even look to broader structures to kind of hold down like the EU, for instance, that this, this and in fact was founded on the basis of um, trying to keep democracy from going out of control, um, so the supposed lesson of, of the Second World War. And so you have like this, it seems to me with progressives, I don't know, I want to call them leftist, but I call them progressives as a placeholder when I don't want to call them leftist. But I suppose lots of people on the left see anything national sovereignty, um, fighting for uh, against the rollback of certain rights is all of this is just very old, possibly dangerous, possibly quasi-fascist. I mean, uh, this is obviously like a legacy of a Stalinist counter counterposition of bourgeois to socialist revolution, right? So one of the things that happens in the 20th century is 
the left stops talking about what we've been talking about, actually. They stop talking about the revolution of 1848. They stop talking about Marx. Instead, all that you hear is you know, the counterposition of 1789 and, and 1917. But really, um, there's no such thing as a, a, a socialist revolution um, in the sense that what's going to drive revolution is the crisis of of liberalism and the demand for bourgeois society. The bourgeois revolution keeps renewing itself. It doesn't go away. We, we're going to keep demanding the, you know, the ability to work, which is very bourgeois demand. Uh, we're going to keep demanding the right of free speech. I hope, you know, maybe not these people, but you know, you're right not to call them leftists. Marx and Engels were very clear in the first international and later when they're advising parties of the second international, when they're critiquing LaSalle, they, they say, you know, forget about the right to vote. If you have to give up one single right for it, don't make this rotten deal with Bismarck for democracy. Our politics is in civil society. We need the rights of a minority. We need the rights to assemble. We need the right to speak. We need freedom from illegal searches and seizures. We need due process of law. Capitalism is a crisis of our rights. As Marx says here in the passages I just read a second ago, democracy will demand the erosion of liberal rights. The right of the majority, right? democracy is about majoritarianism. Uh, the rights of the minority will be rejected. And you know, I, I have news for these people, right? These progressives, right? Oh, I don't know about them. They may be in the majority, but my politics are in the minority. I know that for a fact, and I need my rights. And when they question them, they're hostile to what I understand to be socialist politics. These are statists. These are progressive statists. They're not leftists at all, as far as I'm concerned, right? These are, you know, the short word for them is Democrats. About nationalism, you know, nationalism was um, historically, I don't want to say progressive, valid, uh, significant. Uh, what it meant was that the bourgeois revolution, there was bourgeois nationalism. Obviously, the F French Revolution created French nationalism. Um, it's right there in the national anthem, and which is, you know, the Marseillaise is a revolutionary anthem, right? It was the song sung by the battalion from Marseille when they entered into Paris triumphantly. Um, and it's about the completion of the bourgeois revolution, right? That the nation is being freed from all aristocratic partialization and uh, particularism, right? And people are being made citizens of France rather than like loyal to some local duke or lord or subjects of the local duke or lord. Uh, and that's what drives, you know, French nationalism or English nationalism before that pride in uh, 
being a true born Englishman, which is about which is about freedom and the overcoming of of feudalism. So that in 1848 is becoming a kind of cat's paw of Bonapartism. And Marx is very keenly aware of this. If you look at like his the way he's grappling with with German nationalism. Of course, he's going to experience the unification of Germany, which is a revolutionary demand that he's raising in 1848 by Bismarck, by this militarist Bonapartist project. He's going to see um, pan-Slavic nationalism in the Balkans, uh, Serbian nationalism, etc., as basically a cat's paw of, of czarism. One of the things that I talk about in uh, the books that I've edited is his intense engagement with Italian nationalism, uh, with like Mazzini, right? And the split that emerges in Italian nationalism between republicanism and the nationalism of, you know, that's that's organized by... Um, Piedmont Sardinia, right? The kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia, King Victor Emmanuel II, uh, who eventually is the uh, crowned king of a unified Italy. Uh, and and Mazzini and Garibaldi are on the Republican side. Um, you know, but Marx thinks that they don't understand that the only way Republicanism can be advanced, you know, he thinks of them as naive. Uh, because they're they, they don't grasp that that the Repub- the republic can only be advanced by the working class. So nationalism changes its character. Probably its most acute contradictions uh, are expressed in the U.S. Civil War, right? Where really all that's at stake in your question is being raised. Right, the legacy of 1776 uh, is is clearly at issue um, in the Union cause. Um, the the war isn't a directly about the working class, right? The war is about slavery. Uh, it's it's not about the rights of labor in the sense of the wage laboring class. It's about the rights of labor per se. In that sense, it's very bourgeois. And yet Marx sees it as opening up the possibility of world revolution, right? He sees the demand for bourgeois right, the renewal of the American revolution as opening the door to world revolution. And indeed, it does do that. And that's why he forms the first international uh, or is intimately involved in the formation of the first international. Uh, and there is a wave of revolution that sweeps the world that's you know, rec- realized in things like the Second Great Reform Bill in the UK, uh, ultimately uh, the Paris Commune uh, in France, etc., and so, you know, the question of like, is Abraham Lincoln a leader of the world revolution or is he 
like the arch Bonapartist and the first imperial president. From a Marxist perspective, like both are true because the possibility for world proletarian revolution was real. Most leftists don't even imagine that socialism could have been possible in the 19th century. They just think Marx is some kind of prophet anticipating Che Guevara or something. Uh, Sometimes I feel like it was only possible then in my darkest moments. But anyway, I've heard leftists say that if we had a revolution in the 19th century, it would have been the triumph of white supremacy. Because it would have been a white man's social. This is how lunatic these people are, actually. One of the ways that people understand fascism coming from Trotsky and possibly some elsewhere before Trotsky, but <laughs> is that it's the one class empowers another to suppress a working class revolt. You know, it's in, in um, Walter Benjamin, every fascism famously is an index of a failed revolution. Um, and reading about the history of 1848, that's what it sounds like. It seemed to me that um, Louis Bonaparte was um, empowered to suppress a working class uprising. This has become kind of synonymous with fascism, and obviously a lot of people think of um, the 18th Brumaire as one of the first studies in fascism. So what's the difference then between fascism and a Bonapartist state? I I would say that from a Marxist perspective, um, you know, there isn't a fundamental difference. Obviously, there are political judgments that have to be made about how you respond to one form of capitalist politics versus another. I would say the question of fascism at, you know, if you wanted to just say what it is, is it's a direct and mortal threat to the socialist movement. Um, You know, the significance of Mussolini and Hitler uh, is that they intend to violently suppress the working class movement for socialism in all of its forms. Um, But I don't think that Marxists have a concept of liberal democracy that is different from Bonapartism. You know, I do think that the category of Bonapartism or imperialism is an epochal category in the sense that it designates the nature of state civil society relations in the era of capital. Every state in capitalism is Bonapartist. It is all, they are all part of a world Bonapartist state. Uh, now, the the unity of that world Bonapartist state does not mean peace. In fact, it may mean war because it is a state managing contradictions, right? And war is its lifeblood. This is what I'm going to be analyzing when I publish Marx's writings on the Crimean War, which, you know, for Marx, everybody wins, the ruling class on all sides wins in the Crimean War. War is good for the, for the world state. The world state being at war with itself is good for the world state. That is how Marx understands it. Um, now, there's, uh, he's also taking sides and blah, blah, blah. But um, 
you know, I, I would say that, you know, it is a, it is a function of Stalinism. Stalinism had to say that we're going to side with FDR and the Democratic Party. We're going to side with the progressive bourgeoisie, um, you know, in pursuing the popular front against fascism. We're going to side with uh, the progressive bourgeoisie all over the world. And therefore, the progressive bourgeoisie got dubbed liberal Democrats. That's where I think this notion came from. Um, where, you know, Lenin, Luxembourg, Trotsky, they don't have this idea. You know, obviously they know that Britain and America are more advanced societies than Russia, you know, politically. They know that the political task of pursuing socialism in the United States is a much deeper question than it, you know, than overthrowing the czar in Russia is, right? Overthrowing the czar in Russia, you're going to have immense liberal support for that. Uh, over, you know, the, the question of capitalism is posed much more deeply in Britain and America, France and Germany, than it is in in Russia, um, because the full capacities of capitalism are on display there. What I'm trying to say, Ashley, is the idea of imperialism used to be a domestic concept. People understood that the police and the military were at the heart of the state in the core of capitalism. And that's what imperialism meant most fundamentally. It didn't mean colonialism, right? There could be colonies or there could not be colonies. Germany had no colonies. It's an imperial state. America really had no colonies until the Spanish-American War. It's still an imperialist state. The post-Russian Revolution world and the Stalinization of international communism ends up whitewashing the question of capitalism in the West. In effect, they think capitalism in the heart of capital, in the heart of the capitalist world, or, world order is off the table. And that's where you get the, these uh, rotten anti-Marxist concepts like liberal democracy. Liberal democracy expresses a contradiction in Marxism, as I was trying to say before. Democracy will demand the liquidation of liberalism, as it's doing right now. Rights of free speech or rights to be racist, rights to assemble or rights to insurrect, uh, etc. Um and of course, they do it in the name of protecting democracy. Uh, so this is what I would say, you know, that the 20th century uh, gets very confused about these things. And the liberals drop the, the language, too. I mean, the liberals are happy to take this language of liberal democracy. Whereas in the 19th century, they didn't. They thought, you know, I mean, the whole category of Bonapartism or imperialism, of course, comes from liberalism. They knew that there was something wrong.
If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>